You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Peter chapter 1 tonight, we're going to pick up in verse 12 and to read down through the balance of the chapter. And uh, appreciate you being here tonight, appreciate our musicians and all that's been invested in our worship today. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, if that new song, Psalm 150, resonated with you, but that's a powerful song. And I look forward to seeing that again, as well as the uh, new arrangement of the doxology that we ended with, that bring back some memories. The doxology to me was Aunt Bernice's house in... Uh, uh, what was the little town? Augusta, Ohio, if you know where that's at. The massive, sprawling metropolis of Augusta, Ohio. And uh, we would join hands, and you couldn't even see half the people before Christmas dinner. We would sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And so hearing that today took me back, but I love that new arrangement of that. And singing more than the one little verse I know of the song. That also was fun today. So hopefully God has worked in your heart through our time together. Second Peter 1, let's pick up in verse number 12. Peter here speaking says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing, verse 14, that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, verse 15, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. Here's the voice, here's the words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In verse 18, this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And now some of my favorite verses in the book of Second Peter we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this, verse 20, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so we've been talking about firm foundations a study on solidifying truths in the book of 2 Peter. And so we want to continue tonight. We looked at solid growth. We looked at solid gifts. And tonight we want to look at this subject, solid revelation, what God has revealed uh, to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the privilege it is to open it again this evening, uh, to be entrusted, Lord, by you and by these dear folks to, to faithfully, with your help, divide your word, to open your word, to apply your word, I pray you'd help me to be a good steward with that privilege tonight. And Lord, to be faithful to the text and to be faithful to your spirit as he guides us and applies this truth to me and to each that's here. Uh, Lord, may we be honest tonight where our lack of stability is a result of, in some way, not appreciating and absorbing what you have so clearly and demonstratively revealed to us. Help us, Lord, tonight to see where we come short where we come up short of that standard and to grow and change as it relates to our relationship with your word. Bless this study tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, Hans is here, so I'm going to pick on Hans for a minute. 
He's going to love me for this. He and I are doing discipleship right now. I've joked about this a few times, but shortly after Hans and Jen started coming to our church, they met here. So they owe us for their marriage. They met at our church, and I still remember the first Sunday they met. But I remember uh, back when we did, back in the old days when you had an offering plate. Do you remember those old days? All those germs that we swap with each other so carelessly and recklessly. Um, and I think I'd ask Hans maybe to help do ushering or one of the other guys did. And I think he was all the way over here. And I said, have you ever asked somebody to pray in public? And as soon as you ask them, maybe you don't have this because you don't do what I do, but you're like, oh no, he's going to kill me afterwards for asking him to pray in public. I got that vibe from him. And then his prayer began with um, the following words, something to this effect. So he's starting a prayer to God and he starts with, good evening. That was his first, <laughs> first two words. Is that right, Hans? Yeah. He began with, good evening. Uh, I remember a few years ago, because this isn't exclusive to Hans, I was leaving a voicemail. For, this was like a business contact. So it, was like, it wasn't somebody I knew personally. I was leaving a message, and it was about something like business-related. I can't remember what it was, probably some house deal. I know that surprises you. But anyway, I was leaving a voicemail, and at the end, I kind of, I don't know if I was multitasking or trying to, and that's dangerous for us guys to do, but I ended the voicemail. So this is recorded with the following words. In Jesus' name, amen. Click. <laughs> and then I'm like, what do I do? Like, how, do I leave another voicemail? You know, I don't know. I just let it die. You know, but the guy, when we talked next, he didn't bring it up. I didn't bring it up. It was like this weird, you know, whatever. You ever noticed in prayer that sometimes we forget who we're talking to? And also as it relates to the Word of God, we forget who the author is behind it. So this two-sided conversation between us and God, I think often the reason we don't look to the Word of God and see a source of great stability is because we forget uh, who it reveals, who wrote it, and His intentions in our relationship with Him. And so tonight for a few minutes, we'll not talk about how to pray, pray more effectively or leave better voice messages, but we will talk about how to appreciate the revelation from God. Now it's interesting here, and we'll unpack these verses at length in just a moment, but you almost get the feel that Peter's winding down his earthly influence. And there's this feel of finally, let me give you some final words. I don't know if you ever had, you know, you're getting ready to leave your kids at home for the first time without any parental oversight, and you give them a final word. Don't turn this on, and don't forget to do this, and you know, whatever the, the instructions are. Maybe your boss is going out of town, and they give you some final instructions this chapter, these last few verses are very insightful into what mattered to Peter and specifically what he wanted to make sure that those who were influenced by him would remember. In fact, the word remember is found several times in these few verses as he gives these final thoughts that he wants us to remember, specifically about the revelation of God. So the question tonight is this, in a day of insecurity fueled by ambiguity and relativism, where we're just kind of abstract and kind of just generic in our approach even to God, how do we gain greater clarity and conviction from God's final word on everything that back in verse 3 says pertains to everything that is life and godliness? How do we remember what God has revealed to us? Let's talk about tonight three interactions with divine revelation that will give to the believer a greater sense of stability. Number one, for a few minutes, first of all, let's talk about the remembrance, the remembrance of uh, revelation. Um, I don't know if you have certain techniques you use to remember people's names um, that don't work so well. 
Um, I don't know if you've thought about this. You know, not only do I struggle with leaving voicemails, but remembering people's names. On any given Sunday, I'm not kidding you, there are about 300 names that I should remember. Some are gone, others are here. There's people that come every now and then that would expect me. They know my name, and they expect me to know theirs. And so I've tried all kinds of techniques to remember. Have you ever had where you remember the technique, but not what it's supposed to remind you of, and it's usually some random thing, you know, that makes you kind of smirk when you see them, but you can't remember their name, you know, that kind of that dynamic. Um, the other day I heard someone talking about writing things down, and I found that to be helpful, but somebody said, I would write it down to help me remember, but there's a good chance I'll not, I'll not remember where I wrote it down, you know, and so then you have that dynamic that goes with uh, memories. With God, that is not true. Aren't you grateful that God has bound himself to his word? And that he's given us everything we need to remember. Um, do we have any excuse, brethren, having the word of God, the complete revelation of God in our heart language, that we would say, whoops, I forgot God. I forgot you're faithful. I forgot you're going to hold me accountable by these standards. The word of God gives us everything we need to remember uh, that's important from God's vantage point. And so in verse 14, let's go first to that, and then we'll go back to verse 12. You notice he says... That this the idea of his final word, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle. What's he referring to there? His body. Uh, he's winding down all that uh, he is about to suffer as he is, according to extra biblical accounts, crucified upside down. He's about to put off this tabernacle. Notice here's his priority: to stir you up by putting you in remembrance of all the priorities and all the. The last, if you will, moments of, of Peter's life, of all the things that were important to him, he wanted the believers to remember what God had revealed. All right, let's talk about a few things we need to remember that will provide for us a greater sense of stability. Number one, jot this down in verse 12, remember necessary repetitions from God. Remember necessary repetitions from God. Go back to verse 12, he says, wherefore... I will not be negligent. I'm not going to fail my duties to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and, have, and be established in the present truth. And so remember necessary repetition from God. Peter here determines to keep reminding them and reminding them and reminding them of what they need to remember. Have you noticed that we tend to forget things? And when we become forgetful, we also become very insecure. Um, the two track together, and so often it is our forgetfulness that leads to uh, a, a hollowing or a, a hollowing out of our confidence. So we need to remember what God has revealed to us. Though we may know it right now, or we knew it yesterday, there's a danger of becoming preoccupied or forgetful in a given hour, and so the truth needs to be repeated, repeated, repeated. I don't know if it's a three-by-five card technique, it's on, a, it's on your desktop computer, it's, it's plastered, it, the Word of God. We've got to find ways to keep it before us, especially in moments when we are tempted uh, to forget it. Our confidence is at stake. Often our instability is the result of seeking out new things and underappreciating the same old things that God has given us. Most of us in the room, our insecurities tonight are not because we need something new. We need to figure something out or find something new. We need to come back to what we've forgotten, brethren. These sure things, these things that give to us a greater sense of confidence. Would you just, for a moment, jump over to Hebrew? We're in 2 Peter. Go back just a few pages to Hebrews. So you've got 
1 Peter, you'll go over that and over the book of James, and then you'll bump into Hebrews. Would you go to chapter 4 for just a moment? We don't have time to unpack these verses, but I, I feel led to read them tonight as it relates to this idea of remembering the things that God has been so repetitious in. Look at verse number 1 of Hebrews 4. Let us therefore fear lest Hebrews chapter number 4, I'm sorry, chapter 2. Those were great, those were great thoughts there in chapter 4. We'll get to that someday. Verse number 1 of chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by the angel was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, verse 3, how should we escape if we neglect so great a uh, salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, notice this, and was confirmed, by, confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Who are those that heard Christ? Peter would be found in that category that's being referenced in verse 3. And so we have to remember, remember, remember. Number two, go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Look, if you will, now at verse 13. 2 Peter chapter 1 again in verse 13. And we see a second thing we must remember as it relates to the word of God. He says this in verse 13, Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, again his body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Number two, jot this down. Remember perpetual refreshment from God. The language here in verse 13 has the idea of, of refreshing, stirring up. And that stirring is not just getting everybody worked up into a frenzy. It's, it's renewing, it's refreshing, it's, it's reinvigorating the, the soul and the heart and the mind of the believer. And so renewing and remembering produces this perpetual refreshment that we see here. And the verb here is in the present tense, has the idea of keep refreshing and keep refreshing. It, it's ongoing over and over again. And Paul here says, I think it meet. This is, this is my responsibility. This is appropriate to stir up saints and to bring them back from drowsiness and delinquency to remember the truths of God's Word. One of the things I've found to be true as a pastor, I've just come to terms with this, and, and hopefully you're okay with this. I guess in one way I, I can't care. But we pastors, we preach about the same 20 or so things over and over and over again. There's little wrinkles and nuances, and I try to find fresh illustrations or examples in church history or contemporary situations that maybe would apply, but we just keep preaching the same thing over and over, don't we? And here's what I have found, and many of you have been very affirming in this in different ways. Isn't it nice to come in from the world with all of the flux and the change and the, the, the chaos that ensues and just come back to the same things that every generation of Christians has built their lives and their eternal destinies upon? That, that's, that's, that's refreshing to the soul. It's, it's a gift to the, uh, to the heart of the believer. And so we must choose to avail ourselves of that, not just when we're at church, but in our own walk and relationship with God's revelation. Remember it for perpetual refreshment. Here's my challenge to you tonight. If you are run down, if you are desperately discouraged tonight, and it's not because of some chemical or physical malady you're facing tonight, if you're opting for that, you're choosing that. God's Word can refresh and renew, and would you, would you be willing to remember it in those seasons you're down and allow it to provide a refreshment that nothing else can? Often our instability is the result of slumbering and boredom over the tried and true things of, true things of God as we stumble from one mirage of promising refreshment to another only to be disappointed. Come back to the Word, come back to the Word, Come back to the word. All right, verse 15. 
Moreover, I will endeavor, Peter says, that ye may be able after my decease. So he's very direct here now on this. If the tabernacle expression is a bit ambiguous, he's talking of life after his death in the life of these believers. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Number three, jot this down. Remember gracious plurality from God. God being gracious in plurality. What do I mean by that? Well, look back at verse 15 where he says, have these things. It's plural. We're not just to remember one thing. We're to remember things, multiple things, much that God has revealed to us in his word. And and God is gracious to give us so much through uh, his word. So we have to remember. We have to remember all that he has revealed. Now, how can Peter guarantee that after his death, they would remember these things? The things that Peter had lived for and was going to die for shortly, and the things he had taught and things he had learned from Jesus. How did he know that those things would endure beyond his lifetime? Here are maybe a few suggestions of what was in Peter's heart. Uh, I mentioned this when we went through the Gospel of Mark several years ago. Many have referred to the Gospel of Mark as Peter's Gospel. Peter and Mark had a very close relationship, and so Peter probably knew at this point in 2 Peter chapter 1 that that gospel had been uh, at least set in motion. You'd have to line up some of the dates on when these two respective books were written, but at least that may have been a part of his thinking as he said these things will be remembered through the gospel of Mark. It's also possible that he's referring back to his first epistle and this second epistle, and he knows this is from God. These are not his own words as we're about to get to at the end of chapter 1, and so he knows it's going to outlive him, the truths that he's now conveying to these believers. It's also possible he was thinking of those he had impacted, men like Silas, and again, men like Mark, who would carry on the work after he had died. Whatever was in his mind, Peter was sure, and he wanted God's people not to forget what God had revealed through him and what God had revealed to them uh, through uh, his ministry. You know, one of the things that's amazing to me about the Word of God that gives me such confidence is God doesn't just speak on a subject one time. Aren't you grateful for that? We preachers are glad from that because that gives us different angles and nuances. But aren't you thankful that when you want to, you know, you look at a, a word study, okay, let's talk about love. Aren't you thankful we don't just have 1 Corinthians 13? Or we just have, you know, a Song of Solomon or whatever. There's all these angles that God gives us, this plurality of his truth, and he wants us to, it to be memorable. He wants it to be impactful, and, and so our minds would do well. And the stability that comes if we will give ourselves to the study of all of the counsel of God, where he is plural. Why would God speak to us on a given subject more than once? I think two things. One, it provides a greater baseline. It spreads out our foundation. Our doctrine of love rests upon more than one chapter or one verse. Um, any kooky doctrine has always been built on a singular phrase or one verse. I love when doctrine is built on a, a range of verses and a, a breadth of Scripture, and so that gives us a greater sense of stability. The other thing I love is it, it allows us to understand it better. Have you ever read it about a doctrine in one passage, and then you look at the cross-reference? If you've got a Thompson chain or whatever specific Bible, study Bible you have, and you start to get a well-orbed, a fully-orbed view of that topic because it, God speaks about it more than once. And so it allows us to understand what God has revealed to us more fully. 1 Corinthians 2 speaks on this where it says, "...which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth." Here it is, 
comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we can take one verse and let other verses commentate on that. I use, I, I use a wide range of commentaries in my study, but there's no better commentary on the Bible than the Bible. And you, you compare spiritual things with spiritual. And so our, our confidence, brethren, comes from the fact that God has been plural. Uh, he has been very generous in his revelation to us. So we can rest in that. I'm about you sometimes, probably when I get grapple with the most, to be honest with you, is like Easter Sunday. I'm saying a guy came back from the dead. And if I had just one isolated verse or just one phrase, but it's, it's everywhere. Paul believed it and God revealed it to him directly. And Peter and John had a foot race and then bragged about who beat the other one. You, know, you get all these stories and they all flesh out and you have four gospels. And God is so gracious to give us so much in his word to build and strengthen our confidence. So why would we then forget it? Why would we not give ourselves fully uh, to the ministry of the word? And so may we be open to and remember where God has been so free with it. Tonight, your heart and mind and our life also is only as stable as con and consistent as our mind is remembering God's word. Where do you need to memorize it? That's a lost art in our day. Where do you need to meditate upon it more so that you can consistently remember it? If I ask you to stand and quote the range of your scripture memory, how many verses, I picked on you last week with this in different fronts, how many verses could you honestly quote? And I'm not, you know, looking for the semicolons and that kind of thing, but I'm talking, do you know God's word? You lost your phone and you don't have your Bible and how much of it's in you? We are only as stable and consistent as we are remembering uh, the Word of God. All right, number two, go to verse 16. Peter now begins to talk about the specifics of this revelation. First of all, in verse 16, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice that last word there in verse 16. All right, number two, let's talk for a few minutes about the majesty the majesty of the revelation of God. This book is a majestic book. It is a glorious book. It, it just, the more you zoom in on it, the more you see the nuances and the details of what God has revealed. It is a glorious book. Um, the other day, I can't remember who posted this originally, but have you ever been like watching something or reading something and you feel like you're relating to it, you know, like it's some sport? And you're like, like I, there are times the boys and I, right now we got the whole thing of who's better, University of Michigan's football team or the Ohio State Buckeyes. And we're about to find out here in a few weeks, pray for our household that we'll survive that game with all the cheaters and bad calls and all that's going to be, I'm sure, a part of that dynamic, whoever loses especially um, that game. Um, but if you ever like, you feel like you're in it and that you can make a better call, like whatever they queue up for an offensive call or defensive call, and you, like, you almost forget, I'm, I am not able to do what these guys do. I'm not an expert. The other day I saw this, I don't know if you saw this dialogue. I find this hilarious. This makes me laugh out loud. So someone was watching a stuntman on TV who said, don't try this at home. Me, sitting on a couch eating a five-pound bag of M&Ms. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to try that. You know, like, you know what I mean? Where we like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I was about to do that. I really was going to be able to do that. Do you follow where I'm going with that with the Word of God? I think sometimes there's a disconnect between the God that's given us His Word and where we are and how little we deserve to have it. It is a majestic gift. It's a glorious gift that we need to grow to appreciate. So the majesty of revelation. Now, in, in the verses we just studied, 
he's talking here more about the, the things that have been revealed through the Word of God. He now shifts to not just the Word of God, but to Christ, the incarnate Word, as he begins to talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we see this being revealed through what Peter experienced. All right, let's talk about a couple of things as it relates to the majesty of revelation that should give to us greater confidence. Number one, jot this down, and I use the word revel, kind of just glory in. Number one, revel in the powerful arrival by God. The powerful arrival by God. When God came to earth, he did so in a majestic manner, did he not? Um, how many other people do you know that had you know, night skies over shepherds' fields filled with angels and wise men traveling thousands of miles? And I mean, just all the props and the support characters and the details of God's entrance into human time and space. And so it was a powerful arrival. And Peter affirms that with his words here at the beginning of verse 16. And Peter here says, we have not preached um, fables. The word here is the same word we get our word myth. Mythos is the word here. He's saying this is not a myth. This is not a fable uh, that we have shared with you. We have been eyewitnesses of the greatness or the majesty of Jesus Christ. It was a powerful arrival. And the reason Peter brings that up here is because he's trying to encourage these believers. If Jesus came back one time and came here once in such a majestic manner, he is sure to come back again. And he's coming back with power and glory and and so he begins to remind them that they can count on Jesus. He will show up again as he showed up before. In fact, I'll give you a few verses if you want to jot them down of Peter who firmly believed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 33, he preaches with that bias and that bent that Jesus is coming back. Acts 2, 32 and 33. Also in verse 36. And then in chapter 3, verses, verse 16... He references it as well as verse 20 and 21. So Acts 2, 32 through 33, as well as verse 36. And then chapter 3, verse 16, and verse 20 and 21. Peter believed that Jesus was coming back with power. That's how he was able to stand up under the persecution and all the questions and the debates and the things swirling around him. He was confident because he knew that Jesus, who had showed up one time with such power, can do it again. And by the way, the first coming of Jesus Christ is just a little peek into what it's going to be the second time. You do know that, right? He's not coming to let out a cry or two from Bethlehem's manger. He's coming back with clouds. He's coming back with power. Um, why are we then so timid, brethren? This Jesus that came the first time, just like it was promised, he's coming back, that same person, with power and glory and majesty, our king. And so may we live with confidence in light of that soon coming king. And so it's a reminder. We need to revel in the powerful arrival of God. It could be tonight. I think tonight would be a good night. I'm already, I've been tired since about 5.30 today, have you? It gets dark earlier, and I think this is a good Sunday for Jesus to come back, a good day. He could come back, and when he does, he's going to do so with power. I don't want to be found timid. I want to be found being hesitant balking in spiritual disciplines and confidence, revel in the powerful arrival of God. All right, notice the end of verse 16. He goes on to say this, when we made known unto you the power coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice this, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Number two, jot this down, revel in the glorious demonstration by God. The glorious demonstration. And so he's about to talk about this, what we would call the Mount of Transfiguration, where 
Peter saw Jesus transfigured, the glorious demonstration of God. Um, any of you noticed today that our baptistry service was overflowing with joy? And I mean that in a very literal sense. Um, I won't I won't throw anybody on the bus. One of our deacons filled it just a wee bit too full. So it wasn't, I, it wasn't Brother Bill. I was sitting down here on the front seat, and I, from my seat, which normally is not a good, I could see the water level from where I was sitting when he got in. I'm like, this is not going to end well. And I heard a few kids go, wow, or whatever, like, as like there was like a cascade of water. Uh, I don't know if we captured exactly what God was looking for in that ordinance completely, but it was interesting. I'll give you that, okay? It was, it was different. Um, can I say as it relates to the demonstration that God has given us through Jesus Christ, why did God take Peter up to this mountain? Why, did, why was Jesus transfigured? He did it in large part, yes, to reveal himself and to fulfill prophecy, but to instill confidence in Peter and James and John. Um, and so this demonstration of God's glory is to instill in us a greater sense of confidence. I'm thankful that God's willing to come into my life and display and demonstrate what he's capable of doing. The problem is I fail sometimes to remember those moments, don't you? We could all stand and share moments where God just showed up. You could feel him. You could see him. No one in the space could argue with the fact God just did something. Are we remembering that? Are we living in light of that? Where is our confidence when we have a God so willing to demonstrate uh, his glory and power. And so Peter's reminding them of this moment that he shared with God in the flesh. Peter here is basically saying he, he's going to confront in chapter 2, we'll get to it in a week or so, false teachers. What other teacher can say they saw God in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah thrown in just as a bonus? There, there's no other, he's saying, listen, this is not the same as other teaching. This is at another level uh, because of what God has chosen to reveal. All right, verse 17. Let's talk now about what he saw and heard. For he received from God, this is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ referenced at the end of verse 16, he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, notice all the glory that just oozes from these verses, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now what's interesting in verse 17 is Peter says nothing about what he saw. And he emphasizes exclusively what he heard. He didn't talk about the face of Jesus and the warm and fuzzies about Moses. Man, that was cool. And then I proposed we should build tabernacles. He's matured a bit since that moment. All he remembers and all he points his audience to is what he heard from God. Not what he saw, but what he heard. Interesting. Verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven we heard, again, he's still on the voice and on the revelation, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mountain. So here again, Peter says, we were there. This was literal. Who, who is he meaning when he says we? He's referring to himself as well as James and John. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16 what does it take for someone to be condemned or exonerated in the legal system of the Jewish people? How many witnesses? Three. Here God is verifying. He, he didn't just randomly, oh, let's go with three. Everything is on purpose with God. And so he wanted us to have a confidence. This just wasn't Peter's take. It wasn't just James or John's take. This, this is verifiable. This meets the, uh, the standard of 
uh, corroborating evidence or testimony. So Peter here is reminding us this happened. This happened in a real place with real people. You can draw confidence from what God has revealed. Now, I wish we knew exactly where it took place. Wouldn't it be neat to know where the exact place was that Jesus was transfigured? But the problem is probably we'd have shrines there, right? We'd be distracted by that. Um, we, we, would, we would be focusing on where it happened instead of who it revealed. And so Peter here reminds us this happened in a real place. We can have confidence as a result. May remind us tonight as it relates to experience, the majesty of God is most stabilizing not when it is mystically experienced or seen, but when it is interacted with in a concrete manner through the Word of God. Peter is basing his confidence not on what he saw and experienced on the mount, but on what he heard. He heard the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 reminds us, for all the promises of God uh, in him, whose him, Jesus, are yea and in him, amen. Let it be so, under the glory of God by us. We can go to the bank that the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen. Um, the other day, one of our ladies posted this online. They were talking about fall foliage, you know, and the trees changing. It's beautiful right now, right? Um, Heidi's cousin, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this yet, but we were at a wedding yesterday outdoors and the couple who got married is Heidi's cousin's boy, um, and they were going to go to Mexico, and there actually was, from what I understand, a shooting either at the resort they were supposed to stay at with several fatalities or right next door, and so they opted to not go there, which may have been a smart move, and they're, they're currently, I think, headed to uh, Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Beautiful, I'm sure, this time of the year, a little different than Mexico probably in November, um, but somebody was talking about just the, the beauty of the fall season, and they said, I don't mean to brag, but I know the artist personally. <laughs> thought that was a good way of saying it. The problem is you got to clean up after the artist, right? you got to get your rake out and your blower and all the joys that go with that. But think about that. We know the person behind all of this, the cycles, the seasons. I mean, he's, he's revealing himself in so many uh, measurable ways, the demonstrations of our God. Why then are we so timid and hesitant and, again, just vacillating in our relationship with God? May we draw great hope from Jesus and from the Word that God has demonstrated. This last thought on this area, and we'll move to our last point tonight. Without a healthy awe of what God has revealed to us on His own written terms, we go looking for people, places, things, and experiences that move us to awe, and will instead move us into a place of perpetual instability. Would you and I choose tonight to see and celebrate the majesty of what God has revealed to us in His written and in His incarnate Word? Don't go to other places. I'm not saying you can't travel, but, but don't let those pursuits replace what God has already so clearly revealed to us. All right, now let's, let's move to really the crux of this text tonight, beginning in verse 19. Would you go there? So Peter sets the table with all of these verses that proceed, and now we find the heart of where he's headed with these final thoughts. We have also, we, that would include us tonight, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. All right, lastly, let's spend a few minutes talking about the source of revelation. So we talked about the majesty of revelation. We talked about the remembrance of revelation. Thirdly, we must remember the source. 
Um, yesterday, the wedding we were at um, was outdoors, as I mentioned, and we were sitting on uh, bales of straw covered with blankets, and it was kind of this outdoor farmy uh, feel, and I kind of was a little worried, to be honest with you. I mean, the first week in November, you can have snow, okay? You can have, and it was just a beautiful day. It was at 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon. It was warm. Sun was out, um, and uh, just, it was neat. It was a neat uh, service, but um have you noticed how people try to be unique in their weddings? Have you noticed that? I'm a pastor, so I do a lot of weddings. I'm at a lot of weddings. And uh, one of the areas people get creative is with the unity candle. You know what I mean by that? You know, the mother-in-law, the moms walk in, and they put two candles lit on either side, and then the spouses, the husband and wife come in, and they light the, the center candle. It's a symbol of the new unity of this marriage. I'm of the generation where sand, have you ever seen that? You have two, cul- two cylinders of sand, and then they, they mix them, and you kind of see this swirling, you know, congealment or whatever, the, the merging of these two families, these two lives into one. Well, yesterday we're sitting there and I, I kind of half noticed it until the pastor said something, I didn't fully process it. But I noticed the moms, Jen, Jenny, which would be Heidi's uh, cousin, the mom of the, and then the mom of the bride, they walked in, they just had a can of something, like a, a canister of something. I'm like, I can't tell what they're carrying. And then the pastor got up and, you know, they come in and then they do most of the service and at the end is the uni candle. So there was vows and rings being exchanged, all the sappy, you know, superficial stuff. You know, let's get to what's in those cans. Um, And then the pastor starts talking about PB and J. I'm like, what's he talking about? And here mom of the groom had brought in peanut butter and yeah, oh my, yes. And then the, mo- the girl, her mom had brought in a jar of, of uh, jelly. And so, you know, guys nutty, girls sweet, you know, that whole thing. But the pastor, so he went, I mean, he had this eloquent, he, he nailed it. I mean, I could tell it was like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but here we go. I, I know the feeling. And, uh, and so he does all the analogy and the pictures, the symbolism of this. And then they go to the table and they make a PB&J sandwich and take a bite out of it. It was the weirdest <laughs> It was the weirdest thing, I'm like, to each their own. They may, I don't know about you, we lived on PB&J for a while, so that might be, you know, the phase of their marriage they're going into. Can I just tell you, I don't know that that offends me, okay? It, it, in one way, it bothers me, I have to be honest with you, but I mean, okay. But can I tell you, as it relates to things that are in the Word of God, those are on a different level. The, these truths, these principles are not open for repackaging and creatively presenting in a different way. And so I think to be careful in our confidence, we must first be careful in how we steward what God has given to us. We can't play loose with what God has revealed to us in His Word. This book is not just from another source. You know, footnote it. Oh, by the way, footnote on this page, God wrote this, small g, or he's one of many authors. He's on a different level. And so uh, we have to view this revelation uh, through the lens of its divine author. All right, let's talk about a couple of things in the time we have left. Some of you are now hungry. You're willing to even eat peanut butter and jelly after that illustration. Number one, jot this down, focus on the certain enlightenment from God. Focus upon the certain enlightenment from God. In verse 19, we see this certainty. Notice he says, we have also a more sure or certain word of prophecy. So Peter has just got done talking about an unforgettable moment of seeing Jesus transfigured before his literal physical eyes. And as he's doing that, he begins to think about other sure things in his life and actually things that are more sure or more worthy of confidence. Confidence. 
and his mind and heart lands upon the Word of God. In fact, God's voice on the mountain was really the fulfillment of of what Scripture had already revealed. And so his focus was not on the experience, it was upon the Word of God. Notice the end of verse 19, after stating that, that the Word of God is more sure than the experience. Whereunto ye do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day, dar- uh, day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And so he's admonishing us, what do we do with that? We are to pay attention to the Word of God. Um, this may seem too general in its nature, but I, w- I would challenge you for the exception. Is not the insecure believer the one who has ceased to give their full attention to the Word of God? Like stability comes from focusing and staying upon the Word. And anytime our eyes and hearts wander, that's when the insecurity creeps in. And so we have to give heed to it. We have to focus upon it despite the darkness and the distractions that swirl all around us. In today's experience-oriented societies, many people, even Christians, seek to determine or assess truth by, by things around them instead of focusing upon the Word of God. Peter calls us back to the Word, uh, which is interesting because we just talked about that this morning, didn't we? Those of us that were with us or tuned in online, worship is more than an experience. Uh, it's built on truth, and so truth always tr- uh, trumps experience. Peter here, who knows both, experience both, states it is more sure. And notice he says the reason we're to give it attention is because it is the shining light in a dark and dismal place. We are to view it with confidence. And notice he says, give heed to it um, as a light that shineth until the day dawn. There's the confidence. This, listen, this book, this is not the end of this book. This book is just keeping us ready for all that's going to happen. This is, a, this is a reminder, this is a challenge to us that there is a day that is about to dawn. The Word reminds us and reminds us of that as we enter into it daily. Where we are inconsistent tonight and unstable exposes where we are unnecessarily stumbling in a dark world because we've forsaken giving our full attention to the sure Word of God. Now, let me ask you this question tonight because when I read these verses, if I'm honest with you, Sometimes I'd prefer the Mount of Transfiguration kind of revelation to this kind of two-dimensional ink-on-pages kind of revelation. And I was reading this the other day. Charles Spurgeon was addressing this years ago on the idea of would we listen to God more if He spoke to us audibly? Like if instead of this book, we set this aside and literally I just sat down and we heard unmistakably God speaking to us. Me, to be honest with you, I'd take option B most of the time. I just, it, it, it just would be neat, for one, as well as God is directly speaking to us. But Peter here says that this book is more sure than that. Think about the limitations of God speaking to his people. That means only those within earshot have access to him. Again, in, in human history, there are so infrequent the moments where God did speak to somebody audibly. Aren't you glad we're not limited to that? You know, we read of Abraham. How many times did God actually speak to Abraham? I mean, he waited years and decades before God came back to him with something else, additional information. We have access to the complete canon of Scripture. I I could open it right now, and I can open it at 3 a.m. tomorrow morning and hear from God. There's there's an excellence to that. There's a sureness to that that often we tend to diminish. But anyway, Charles Spurgeon said this. Listen to these words. I love this analogy. 
He said, do not say that you would accept that call of God if it were spoken with a voice rather than written. You know that it is not so, uh, it is not so in daily life. If a man receives a written letter from a father or a friend, does he attach less importance to it than he would if it was done to him in spoken communication? I reckon Spurgeon says that many of you in business are quite content to get written orders, maybe this is digital as well in our day, for goods, or when you get them, you do not require a purchaser to ask you in person. You would just assume that he should not. In fact, you you commonly say you would like to have it in black and white. Is that not so? Well, then you have your wish. Here is the call of God in black and white. And I do but speak according to common sense when I say that if the Lord's call to you be written in the Bible, and it certainly is, you do not speak truth when you say, I would listen if it were spoken, but I cannot listen to it because it is written. The call as given by the word of inspiration ought to have over your minds a masterly power. And if your hearts were right before God, that word spoken in Scripture by the Holy Spirit would be at once obeyed. Written doesn't diminish it. In many ways, it expands it. It it brings it to bear in our lives in ways that otherwise would not happen. And so may we be willing to focus on the certainty of the enlightenment that God has given to us. It is a more sure word. All right, go to verse 20. And notice, secondly, he says this as it relates to this prophecy that we have, this revelation that its source is God, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. All right, lastly, capital B, jot this down. Focus on the original purpose from God. This is key tonight. Do you not only look to the Word of God for what it's saying, but why God said it? where he's trying to move things. His word does not return void. It it accomplishes its purpose and mission. Isaiah 55 is clear on that. We studied that today or on Wednesday in our small groups. There is an original intent or purpose of God in his word. The other day I heard this. I thought this was insightful. Somebody said the Bible is the only book that gets changed to say what the reader wants to hear instead of reading what the writer has to say. Isn't that true? Well, you know, I, I just, that doesn't speak to me, or I think actually this is what is being said. And, and again, I like us having Bible discussion study, but who cares what it means to you? <laughs> who cares what it means to me? I'm, I'm tired of that banter in our day. What does God mean? And we talked about today in worship. There was no agenda in the study today. It was just, here's what the Word says. And whatever topic we're dealing with, may we let the intent of the author be what comes through, not what we want to hear or someone else that's hearing it from us, focus on the original purpose from God. So Peter brings us to that now in these last two verses. All right, verse 20, notice he says here that no prophecy is of private interpretation. What is meant by that? I've heard this verse, to be honest with you, very misconstrued and misrepresented, um, and often the intent is, is well-meaning. But the text does not bear that out. The first way that often this is interpreted is Scripture should be interpreted only in context. That is, a prophecy cannot stand alone without the other prophecies. And we talked a bit about comparing spiritual with spiritual. That does not seem to be the intent of the text here. Number two, many would say Scripture should not be interpreted according to one's individual liking. Again, we see no indication of that on Peter's part. Number three, Scripture cannot be correctly interpreted without the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I, I don't know that we see that as well being referenced. And then the fourth that seems to be the most likely, the prophecies did not originate with the prophets themselves. 
the word interpretation here has the idea of where did it come from? Not so much interpreting the text as in giving our take on it, as in delivering it is the idea here. Um, it's unloosing, it's freeing the text to be what God wants it to be. And so the scriptures here did not stem from the prophets themselves. Their writings came from God. Uh, verse 20 here speaks less about our interpretation in the sense we would use that term and more about its source, the revelation that God has given. And to prove that, look at verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. He's not talking about interpretation there. He's talking about where did it come from? The word of God came from God. And so this verse supports this idea that God is the originator. He is the author. Uh, yes, God spoke through these men that he inspired, but it was born along. It was carried along. It was moved forward by uh, the spirit of God. And the idea here is almost like a vessel. You know, it's on the water. And yes, the vessel uh, is aware of what's going on, those on the vessel, but it is the water. It is the wind. It is the factors around it that are moving it forward, the scriptures as well, were moved by and directed by God himself. That gives us certainty, doesn't it? This book did not originate with men. It came from God, the one who is immutable. The most certain thing in the entire cosmos, he's the author of this book. And so that character of God is now possessed by this book. Because its source is God, the certainty of its source allows us to look to it for the certainty that God provides his children. And so the text here asserts that the scripture is not human in its origin, it is God. It comes from God. So may we be willing not to just hear David's opinion or Paul's opinion or even Peter's opinion as we're reading tonight. May we see that these are clear directives from God himself. He is authoritative. He is accurate in all that he says. And I think where our spiritual stability struggles is we forget the origin of the text here tonight. We forget the origin of the Bible, and therefore we lose the security, the stability that God offers uh, his children. I want to give you three terms quickly. We have time to unpack this at length, but can I give you three terms that refer to how we got the Bible and how God has preserved it for us in our day? These are key words. You may want to jot these down, then just a brief definition. But our church, clearly in our doctrinal statement, and, and clearly this is revealed in Scripture, believe in the verbal, plenary, and inerrant Word of God. And I want to just briefly give you a definition of each of those because the text directs us to be a bit specific on this. So first of all, let's talk about the word verbal. By verbal inspiration, we mean that the very words of God uh, were penned by 40 or so human authors as God breathed through them. God spoke every word um, that is in the Word of God. He didn't say to Peter, for example, in 2 Peter 1, Peter, would you just cover a few things on the following topic? Run with it. Um, he, he gave precisely what he wanted said through the human vessel and instrument of Peter. Uh, it was verbal in its nature. And so we believe that. Um, and there are multiple passages that teach on that. 1 Corinthians 2.13 is a great verse on that, the idea of God breathing through um, these human vessels. Um, he didn't just give them a general outline or basic idea to write on. They were given the exact words through the ministry of the Spirit. All right, secondly, jot down the word plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. By this, we mean that all the Bible is equally given 
uh, is God given from generation through uh, revelation. It is fully the Word of God. One of the subtle things you'll hear is the Bible contains the Word of God. And that's how they can pick and choose an a la carte when it speaks to certain social issues or controversial things. And, well, yes, the Bible contains the Word of God. No, we believe in the plenary inspiration of God's Word. It's either all God's Word or none of it is God's Word. It stands or falls uh, together. And then lastly, number three, the word inerrant, I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T, inerrant. By this, we mean that God's Word is without error. Um, not only in doctrine, but in history, science, chronology, and other areas. So it is without error. So when it speaks to paths in the sea, um, before the belief, and now we have a growing number of folks who believe the earth is flat, um, back when the world was referred to as a sphere, long before man knew it was, and Columbus was afraid of falling off the edge of the earth, God's Word was already talking about it. And so God's Word is accurate in everything that it speaks. It is inerrant. Uh, and so we can have confidence in a book that is uh, verbal, verbally and plenary and inerrant in its, uh, in its character. We can have absolute confidence in it. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the Antique Roadshow or not. Uh, maybe that's a sign of the stage I'm entering. Heidi likes to watch it. I'm still young and spry. I watch other much more creative things. I'm just kidding. Um, but there's a word that they used as they're evaluating the value of, a, of a, an object. So art thing. Any of you watch this or just me? Okay. There's two of you. Thank you. A few other older souls in the room. Um, but I, I, my grandparents collected antiques. They had like 3,000 old chairs in their house. And when I remember when they passed away, dad and my uncle and their sister, like they had no idea what to do with all of them, but just they loved antiques. So that's always been a part of our family. But if you ever watch that show, they use a term called provenance. And basically what adds value to an object is the story behind the object, and specifically if it can be verified. So I have this bill of sale, I have the original receipt, or I have the, the, the um, artisan that made this, this vase or whatever, and they can prove by the symbols on the bottom and some of the documentation, the provenance would be the proof of the background, the chronological ownership. It was owned by so-and-so and then by so-and-so, and the custody is valid, and, and it fits within certain historical parameters. All of that adds great value. And I have heard people say, when it's being assessed, if you had the provenance, this would be worth so much more. Aren't you thankful that we have the provenance on the Word of God? Like, we know the backstory, brethren. That should instill a greater treasure and value and confidence in it because we know its source. I love the Apostle Peter, but he was a flawed man, wasn't he? Paul that wrote such a large chunk of the New Testament was a, a great Christian, but, but he had his shortcomings. And in all of these texts and all the flaws we see in these men and in these women recorded in Scripture, God uh, is the one that is the source. And so we can be confident in it. And until you and I are overwhelmed by the realization of what we have from God and His Word, we will continue to be subject to the ebbs and flows of our emotions and our circumstances. Uh, are we confident that this is the anchor? It's the anchor because it is from God. All right, I end tonight with this illustration. I hope this helps me bring this to bear in your heart. There's a key word. If you go back to verse 12, and I, I referenced this verse, but specifically waited to reference this phrase until the end tonight. Notice the end of verse 12. It says, 
I put you always, I, I will not be negligent to, put, negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them. Notice this, and be established in the present truth. The word established there. Over and over you see Peter referencing this, being established, being established, being established, strengthened. The term here is, is architectural in its, its core and its, in its, its significance in, in the text tonight. And we would do well to strive for this kind of establishment, this kind of engineering, structural intentionality. Um, and I was reading an article was talking about that when they do engineering, I don't know if you've ever seen a bridge going up or something else being built. I think I heard right now there's a building being built here in Worcester, like near Daisy. It's being built for a Fortune 500 company. And they don't know who the company is yet. Somebody, there's someone, a third party, and they're not letting the cat out of the bag of who this big building that's being built. Worcester Brush is building a big building, but they're building this other one. But as a building is being built, there's so much engineering that goes on behind the scenes before uh, ground is ever broken. And uh, I was reading an article, I was talking about there's two forms of stability in any given structure. Um, first, there's the vertical stability. This is how the, the new construction will relate to needs for security vertically. Heavier loads require a deeper, more solid uh, foundation. But there's also horizontal stability of that structure. This ensures the building will not blow over during a hurricane or shake loose during a seismic event such as an earthquake. And I just want to challenge tonight, I think that's where we're lacking. I don't, I don't see in you a sinking on a, on a vertical level. I don't think it's that you're, you're moved on the things that are within the parameters of God's his, his revelation. Like, I don't think there's many in the room saying, maybe we should be saved by works, or, or maybe there's something doctrinal we need to reconsider. It's the side winds. It's the things that don't directly connect to our faith that are blowing us off course. It, it's, it's vaccines, and it's politicians, and it's economic things, and the whole idea of, you know, gas costs more now than it did under so-and-so. And these kind, of, these kind of horizontal things that are of concern, but they're not, they're not things that should move us from our moorings. I think that's where we're missing this establishment that we need to be remembering and renewing in our relationship with God's Word. And so tonight I would say this as we finish. You will only be as stable horizontally or vertically as you are feeding upon and building upon uh, the Word of God. And so may we tonight ground ourselves with God's help through His revelatory remembrance, His revelatory majesty, and His revelatory source. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Your Word tonight.